Hey there, this is Keith Carpenter. I get to pastor Epic Life Church, and it's such a, a blessing that you're watching this today. I want to encourage you to in, um, enjoy this message and enjoy this worship and time. But I also want to encourage you that if you're listening from a different place in this city or in this country, and you have a local church that you're part of, that you invest into that local church. It's really good that we can hear people online, men and women teach and expound on the scripture. But in the long run, we need to go back to our local church and be part of that community. So again, it's a blessing having you here. I pray that this is a blessing to you and I want to encourage you to invest in your local community. Have a great morning. Actually got to be at a memorial service yesterday that was so, so wonderful to be uh, present in. Um, I think there had to be 500 plus people there uh, in this church over in Renton uh, celebrating the life of uh, Steve Goff. Uh, who is Kyle Goff's father, Kyle and Chris Goff, so you guys know him, uh, them. And uh, it was just a beautiful celebration. Um, people who just spoke about his life and the way that, uh, that uh, his life lived um, helped them, was a testimony to them, transformed them in so many ways. And just a blessed time, a, a beautiful time, listening to stories. Thank you. Uh, listening to stories and listening to a song, uh, poetry, and all this stuff. He was a, a man of God who loved uh, chocolate chip cookies and poetry. So um, right up my, my alley there for sure. Uh, <laughs> hopeless romance and, uh, and chocolate chip cookies. I don't know. The only thing that's a little better than that maybe is apple pie and ice cream. So um, every time Christine goes to the store or somebody goes to the store in our house, I say, hey, um, see if there's any apple pie up there. Usually store apple pie is gross, though, let's face it. Um, we, last week, um, last week was really powerful for me. I don't know if you were here and you heard that. Uh, I've had so many great conversations with, with people over this last week about the, the message from the following week um, with, with my dad. And actually the conversation with anger and with uh, a generational anger and generational issues and sin, generational rebellion. Um, so many, so many great conversations. And so I, I actually have his email if you want to email him and follow up. I know a couple of you have already. If you would like to send uh, him a note, that'd be great. He would probably... Re probably cherish a handwritten letter to tell you the truth so if any of you know how to put a stamp on a letter address a letter still write a letter uh he would love a handwritten letter from someone and just just that encouragement would be super super cool for him um it's something that uh dad if you're watching i, ho I hope you are I, I know sometimes you do so Thank you so much uh, for that, your generosity of sharing your testimony with us and the transformation of your own heart, uh, coming, going from a, a place of, of anger to a place of peace and of rest. So, so good. Thank you for that. Um, I've realized personally that I need to write a letter to my dad more often than I do. Uh, you know, our parents don't stay with us forever. Uh, at this memorial service last night, or yesterday, which was, which was two and a half hours, and then the reception was following that. I mean, it was hours and hours long of just testimony after testimony about this man's life. And, and just realizing the power of a life lived well is so, so wonderful, so vibrant, so, so good in other people's lives. I, um, but the, the key of that is to live life well, right? And often we get so wrapped up in our own self needs and self-entertainment and self self that we forget to live life living life well is living life for others with others uh, in in the midst for god but in um, helping and, and bringing people along i hope you know people like that in your life and if you do spend time with them go spend time with them write them letters talk to them and spend time with them and so this summer i'm hoping that we actually as a church get to get outside and spend more time together as uh, more and more come back to uh, services on sunday morning and uh, throughout the the day um, or throughout the, the summer, we're going to be outside doing barbecues, doing some, some potlucks, uh, bring your favorite dish type of thing. We've got a camping trip planned. I know there's a men's fishing trip coming up on the 23rd. If you don't know about that, talk to, to, 
to Jake here uh, and different things uh, for women and men throughout the summer. And so just excited about that. So please uh, find a way to get involved and talk with people and be in people's lives. It's so powerful and so important. All right. So we're going to get back into Matthew chapter 5. Uh, this is the Sermon on the Mount. If you want to turn there as I open this with prayer, asking God to speak this morning. Father, you're so generous, and I thank you for your abundance. I thank you for the way you present your scriptures to us and the, the uh, grace that you give us in this. I pray that we would read the Sermon on the Mount not as another list of rules and regulations to follow and to fail at, but that we would hear that as you wanting our heart, you wanting us, our soul, to change and transform Lord, you know when we talk about seeing North Seattle transform through an epic life in you, that we're not talking about the physical only. We're talking about the heart change of the people of North Seattle to bring about the transformation of the ground itself, uh, the transformation of the street and the, the, uh, the visual of it. Uh, that we would understand, Lord, that our actions, when our actions are the outflow of our heart attitude, we are powerful and effective before you. Thank you for making us righteous men and women uh, before you. And I pray that as you speak this morning, that, uh, that we would all hear something that would convict our soul, uh, help us to walk forward and to offering our lives to you with open hands, um, open hearts, to hear what you need to say to us this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen. So this morning, I, we're, as we continue with the Sermon on the Mount, one thing that's beautiful about preaching through the Bible and not just topical, I, I love topical sermons, that's all right, and I love topical sermons because we live a topical life. Uh, that's, that's what we are. We live a topical life. We, we live in topics, right, in, in everything we do. But um, an important thing not to focus on topics alone is to preach through the Bible verse by verse. And one thing that happens when you're preaching through the Bible verse by verse is you get to a passage or two that you're like, wow, love to skip this passage. But because it's in the Bible, we need to deal with it. And so it's really important that we deal with the hard stuff. And so the next two Sundays, today and next week, are hard things that Jesus said and, and preached about. And I'm hoping that as I share this with you, we would see Jesus and his words in just a slightly different light than we have in the past. Let's be honest. How many of us uh, look at Jesus' words often and feel like there's condemnation in there, there's, there's guilt and shame, and if you don't do this, then you're going to get this bad thing. So come on, you better get going. Um, and maybe we say, no, no, I don't believe that about Jesus. But when we read certain passages, it comes out a little stronger about what we actually believe. The sermon on the mount is directed to the heart. How many of you have a heart this morning? Anybody out here? Raise your hand if you have a heart. All right, good. We're, we're 100%. That's good. Uh, Jesus is talking to you. Um, those of you without a heart, uh, well, uh, you're dead. So... So Jesus is talking to you with a heart. The Sermon on the Mount is about heart change, not about action change first. It's about heart change first, action change second. The way of the world is action change first, and maybe we'll get to that heart thing. But, but get your actions right. Structure your actions, do your thing. And so in every book, um, there's a, there's a, in every good book, let's say, there's a prologue. I've been reading this book about Thunder in the Mountain, and uh, I've actually shared with you a little bit about that. It's about the, the Nez Perce Indian War in, in Idaho and Montana and area, uh, about Chief Joseph and a guy named General Howard. And the prologue of this book is, is 45 pages. It's a long prologue. And the prologue sets the book up so we understand the book, right? It's really important. Don't, don't skip the prologue. For those of you who want to get to the story, the prologue sets the story up. I remember once when I was young, I was reading a book. I think it was Call of the Wild or something like that. And there was an intro prologue. And, and, I, and I, I, my mom gave me the book, and I skipped right to the chapter one. And mom's like, no, 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 you got to read the, the intro. I'm like, the intro, who cares about the intro? It's just, it's nothing. It's not chapter one. Chapter one is where the value is, is where the meat is, is where the exciting adventure is. The exciting adventure only makes sense if we understand the prologue and the intro, right? And so the prologue and understanding the Sermon on the Mount is super, super interest, interesting um, and super uh, important. The prologue of Thunder on the Mountain is understanding who General Howard 
is by starting in the Civil War and the Battle of the Bulge and him losing his arm and him setting up uh, Howard University in New York as uh, um, and going back uh, as the Civil War, the Union won, and he went back to New York and set up and created Howard University. Um, and then also in the prologue is talking about Chief Joseph um, and where he came from, the childhood in the Wallawa Valley in, in Oregon and how he grew up uh, um, uh, as a hunter-gatherer over to Montana and back over to Idaho and, and their whole life. And that sets up the story for the epic adventure of Howard and, and Chief Joseph. So, so good. But without that, we don't understand a lot. So the Sermon on the Mount, we have to understand why, where this is coming from. And so Jesus starts this, as I reminded us many times, in chapter 4, verse 17. Jesus says, repent of your sins, turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is here. And so Jesus is setting up this idea, repent of your sins, turn to God. Repent of your sins and turn to God. And there is this first thing of, of, of salvation. And then he says, the next thing he says is, come follow me and I'll show you how to fish for men. And then he goes up on the side of the mountain. He sits down in a respected position. His, his disciples actually come up the mountain and gather around him closely. And perhaps, probably, there's people and a crowd beyond. Jesus then sits down and he starts teaching his disciples, his followers, people who have um, and as we look at it, would be in the space of repenting of their sins and turning to God. So his followers were sitting right there. And so the Sermon on the Mount is, is really scripted to people who follow Christ. When we try to introduce parts of the Sermon on the Mount to people who do not know Christ or do not follow Christ, their hearts haven't been changed and transformed by the Holy Spirit. When we try to share the words of the Sermon on the Mount, it's offensive and it hurts and people will back up and go, oh, that's why I hate Christianity. And when our hearts have already been transformed by the Holy Spirit, we start to understand this stuff differently. We start to realize things differently. And so Jesus, then in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, the S-O-T-M, Jesus is concerned about the heart and heart transformation. Pharisees were concerned about actions. Let's face it, mankind is concerned about actions. How can I um, sanction you and tell you in your extremity and in your, your group how to behave and how to act? If I get you to behave and act right... Then, then maybe we can have a peaceful world. But the peaceful world does not come from people behaving and acting right if their hearts aren't right. It doesn't work. It never does. That's why behavior modification in prisons seldom work without a spiritual component of it, a Christ-like component of it especially. So um, actions, um, come to find out always, well, lasting actions or, or spontaneous actions come from a heart, a heart space. Our heart, our actions are often tethered to our heart. Like if I had a long rope here and at the end of that is, is, a, uh, is something that's clamped on that and that would be my actions, here is my heart and wherever I go, that rope and my actions kind of follow. And so spontaneous actions or, or lasting actions come from a place of the heart. Now when many people act without a heart issue, they act for different issues and which probably betray their heart issue. Different issues like I want to be seen. I want people to know how good of a person I am. I want to get a tax deduction. I want to do this so that I can get better status. That also comes from a heart place, right? So our heart, our heart, our actions are tethered to our heart as we go along. This is um, then the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is saying uh, immediately, he's saying, this is who you are. So this morning, um, I'm speaking to Christians people who know Christ as Savior. If you don't know Christ as Savior this morning, I want to encourage you to discover that, repent of your sins, and turn to God and have your heart transformed by the Holy Spirit so that stuff like this can be understandable. So Jesus says, blessed are you. And he goes through the Beatitudes and he helps us understand the kingdom of heaven, why we're blessed and who is blessed and what that blessing means. And then he goes right into saying you are. And he describes us as Disciples. He describes us as, as salt. You bring tastiness and you purify, purify and you preserve, right? You're, you bring tastiness of the Holy Spirit to the earth. That's who you are. You are. And he also says you are light. 
You are light. As Christ followers, we go into the world and we are light. We glow, we shine, we show a road, a direction, a place to go. And we, we share and care for people in, a, in our heart attitude of spontaneous actions, we show and share the light. We, we even, light even, even um, allows us to see color, right? It allows us to understand color in a different way. And, and because of light and darkness, we can't see that. So... You are salt and light. And then he goes on. He says, don't ignore. Okay, this is who you are. So don't ignore the law. The law is important. And he starts off with that. It's not like a, a footnote someplace uh, that you have to look up and, and, and reference somewhere else. Jesus starts off with saying, this is who you are. You are blessed. I am here to transform you through grace when you understand the law. And so Jesus says, don't miss out on the law. The law is super important. I haven't come to abolish the law, to, to strike the law, to eliminate the law, to make it so you don't go back to the Old Testament and read the Old Testament. I'm here to fulfill the law. And fulfilling the law is in, in the heart. And so for compassion, for grace to happen, I say this a lot, but for grace to happen, we have to understand there is justice, there is a law, there is a thing that we find out, come to find out, we can't even stand up, we can't even hold to the law. In fact, Jesus would say, um, when he's talking about the law, he says, I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And in the back of the crowd here are some Pharisees going, that's right, we are righteous. And if you guys don't line up with our rules and regulations and all the actions we're doing, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven like we are. And they're back there puffing themselves up. Little do they know that Jesus is about to drop some bombs on them, some truth bombs, and they're going to be hurt and cut to the quick because of. And so here he is. He's saying the law is super important. But guess what? You cannot get there on your own. You cannot be righteous on your own. It's impossible. It's not going to happen. Righteousness cannot happen on our own strength and our own actions. It's a heart change that has to happen, and it happens through Jesus Christ himself. So beautiful. So amazing. And so he goes on, and he, like last week, he, he starts down. He actually starts down the law, the Ten Commandments. Part of the Ten Commandments is you shall not murder and do not commit adultery and do not covet right those are some the sixth and seventh commandments and he's going and the last one and so he's going right into that right after talking about the law he's going right into talking about murder and he equates that with anger the action of murder is equated is equal to the heart response of anger and he goes into the next one and he talks about adultery so this is where we get to stand, adultery this week, divorce next week, which is super exciting for me as a pastor. Um, because, actually, it is. Because there's truth in here. And it's truth that we need to understand and listen to and then rectify in our own life spot. So this week we're talking about lust. So let me read this, okay? This is Matthew 5, verse 27. And actually, if you'd stand, um, this is respect of God's word, and, and I'll read this as we, we follow along. So, Jesus says, he says, uh, well, you've heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, not even your good eye, causes you to, to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your strongest hand, your right hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. So Father, we commit this, your word, back to you. And may we our hearts be cut and may we walk away from defensiveness but into a presence of you convicting our hearts for heart change and life change and i pray that you would speak because your word speaks by itself in jesus name amen you can be seated jesus is stepping into the seventh commandment and saying you've heard us you're not supposed you've heard the the law that that Jesus, that God wrote, like actually the symbol is God took Moses up on the hill, up on the mountainside and wrote with his finger in the stone tablet. 
God wrote the Ten Commandments. These are God's Ten Commandments presenting to us a world that everybody already knew these Ten Commandments, actually. They already knew these things that everybody already knew that you should not take my wife. You should not be lusting after my wife or have, my wife should not be having an adulterous affair and I shouldn't be having an adulterous affair. Everybody already knew that. And guess what? Everybody already knew you should not murder. Well, it's okay to go to that tribe and, and murder them, but, but you should not, in this tribe, you should not kill me or my family. Everybody already knew that. These are things that people know. In, in this tribe, in this community, uh, you should not take what's mine. We already knew that. That was already something. And so God is writing it down, these heart things, these, these things that people really, people already knew. If you want to read a fantastic book, it's Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Fantastic, wonderful, because he came from an atheist perspective. I just had a conversation with someone over at the coffee shop this week, an atheist who was uh, kind of talking, he came out of a Christian world and now was talking about atheism. He's like, I just don't believe all this and this and this and this. And I said, really, you need to pick up this book by C.S. Lewis. He was an atheist and he started to wonder why in every culture on the earth, people had the Ten Commandments on their heart already. Every single culture. And it's like, how can that be if we're just from a blob from the ocean? So G Jesus starts now talking about these Ten Commandments that God wrote with his finger. He wrote them out. Um, and he starts talking about adultery and lust. You know what adultery and lust sermons are like? Guilt and shame making us feel bad enough so we can change our behavior finally, right? Shame-based behavior modification works really well, doesn't it? I mean, it's never worked for me, right? I, I mean, shame-based, it, it just actually makes it worse. Actually, I discovered back as a young man that shame-based um, behavior modification about porn just makes the thing worse, actually. Shame-based modification makes our um, desire for addictive behaviors worse and worse and worse because we're trapped in this, this shame um, uh, uh, cyclone that just spins us around and around. And because we feel shame, we act in shame. And because we feel um, guilt, we act in guilt and we act in more and more. And seldom, it, it, for a little bit, we step out and go, I'm going to be strong now because I don't want to feel any more shame. I'm going to be strong. Well, that, I mean, it just doesn't work long term. It doesn't change our heart. That's, that's most, most sermons on lust. I remember this book back in the 80s or 90s and it just talked to young men about not lusting and it was just about bounce your eyes, bounce your eyes, just don't look at anybody. I'm like what kind, of, what kind of philosophy is that? Okay, now I can't look at anybody in the eyes? What if a woman is actually beautiful? So, God. I mean, what? I, this, this is weird theology or weird doctrine. Bounce, bounce your eyes all the time. What if we, that's, a, that's an action thing, right? So there's a beautiful thing in every sin and every rebellion that we head into. There's beauty inside of that and actually truth. Humans are beautiful. Humans are beautiful. And so for us to say, well, I'm not going to look at a human anymore because I'm trying to, um, this, there's something mixed up and messed up in there. And it really leads to the shame-based culture and behavior modification that doesn't work. Because we, we cease to understand God's grace and we don't understand, even though it's, it's put out there like we understand justice, we don't really understand justice anymore. Jesus, Jesus put to death shame and guilt. Can I have an amen on that? He put to death shame and guilt, giving us grace through faith in Christ. So his comments on the Sermon on the Mount cannot be bringing back shame and guilt, right? This cannot be about shame and guilt. He came to put that to death. Why would he come to put something that he says to death? It doesn't make any sense. So we have to look at this passage through this, the eyes of grace and justice. Shame and guilt are the way of the Pharisees and fear-mongering Christians. You have learned, Jesus says, but I tell you to feel worse now. Now, that's just not his way. It's just not his way. It doesn't get to the heart. So there's conviction as sons and daughters of the kingdom. There's conviction, heart change. Conviction drives and, and pulls and, and creates heart change. Um, people who are not in the family of God are, are um, about the only thing they have is guilt and shame. So 
grace only matters, of course, when we understand justice, and we, we will continue to understand justice all the way through the Sermon on the Mount. Christ wants us to experience the abundant life that comes from a life that heart change, not a guilt trip or a shame dump. That doesn't, that doesn't lead to an abundant life. That leads to stringent legalism and a whole lot of rules <laughs> that you have to put in place so that people don't step across the boundary. And every time you come up to another bifurcation of your, your life, you're coming up to right or left, right or left, I don't know what to do. And the, the Pharisees coming out, about, that's wrong, this is right, we'll put up another rule. Oh, there's another, that's wrong, this is right, we'll put up another rule. And you're trying to live in all this rule and it is chaos. So one other thing that the prologue, I'm still in the prologue. All right. Lust is a mankind issue, not just a man issue. I'm going to say that again. Lust, lust is a mankind issue, not just a man issue. A letter from a woman to a pastor friend of mine, as she wrote to her, uh, her, uh, her pastor as he was preaching about this as well. She says this. Unfortunately, men seem to be the primary targets when addressing lust. But it's a mankind issue, not just a man-only sin. Women just have the ability to be more discreet and well-mannered with their lust. We can prettify most anything, including our lustful thoughts and desires, and with skillful self-justification, we can validate our sin by spinning it to just being romantic and not being lustful. So... So this conversation, even though Jesus is actually speaking to men, and it's kind of um, from a perspective of the male uh, um, world at the time especially, he's really speaking to all of us as men and women and children of, of God's. So, um, parents, this is a bit of a PG-13 sermon. I'm going to try to keep it PG, but I need to be candid so you might have to have some conversations on the way home. That's probably okay. Um, we need to breach these topics much earlier than 16. Or I think um, my wife's mother uh, breached the topic on, was it the wedding night or the night before? <laughs> so dear, there's some things. <laughs> She's a wonderful woman. <laughs> so... It's okay to talk. In fact, I've learned that the faster you talk about things, the easier they become. And little kids don't know that there's, there's a guilt and shame involved yet. A long time ago, um, Josh, did you find that picture of Square Mountain? Awesome. So a while back, um, maybe about 20 years ago, in 2005, I believe, I brought a, a group of uh, young men and women to, to the Washington State area to climb Mount Rainier. And uh, we had trained and hiked, and uh, in Minnesota, we only had a 500-foot bluff <laughs> to train to climb 14,000 feet. And, uh, and so we trained on that 500-foot bluff by putting, like, 80-pound bags of dog food and cat food in our backpacks and hiking up the bluff and running back down, hiking back up. And it was like, okay, how many times up and down? That's 28 times, right, just to get to the top of Mount Rainier. And then you don't have altitude, so you don't know what breathing is like. And so I think some of us wore masks so, so we could have this <laughs> kind of thing going on. And so... So we, we headed out here, pretty cool. Uh, I've told this story, um, parts of this story often. We had these shirts printed, the journey, the journey to the summit. And so the college ministry, the whole year was this journey to the summit thing. We're sending these people out to uh, climb the mountain. Aaron was on that trip uh, many years ago. And uh, the problem with the shirt is we've, whoever printed it, which I think it was the most astute person, actually, I think it was Erica, but she printed this shirt that, that missed the U. So it was the journey. And from, from then on, we wore these shirts. We wore them proudly, the journey to Rainier. And so we did this trip. We, we drove out here. On the way out, there was a bunch of chaos. We finally made it to Idaho. We were going to spend a few days over the 4th of July in Idaho with my parents and hike up into the, to the um, Buffalo Hump uh, Gospel Wilderness area and go from uh, uh, Buffalo Hump to, to Square Mountain. I'm going to have to change the story just a little bit this morning because Aaron's here, and now I have to make it a little more truthful. So... Uh, <laughs> 
my grandpa used to say that every good story is worth embellishing a little bit. So, so we, we hiked. Uh, this, is, this is kind of the route. I'm trying to, trying to see this. Yeah, that's, that's Square Mountain over here on the, the right. That, um, not quite on the big loop, but just where it dips a little bit on the top. That's Square Mountain. And way over here is, you can see the Gospel Hump Wilderness Area. And way over there is uh, Buffalo Hump. So we start on Buffalo Hump. We summit Buffalo Hump. It's about 9,500 feet. We get to the top at 96, somewhere around there. We get to the top of that, look around, and we look over there west, the uh, Square Mountain Lookout. That's where we're going to hike. My brother and I had hiked this trail often, at, well, often, <laughs> twice. And we were young, and we were pretty young. But we thought, you know what, this can't be very hard. We grew up in the wilderness. We know direction. And honestly, you could take me um, and spin me around 25 times and plop me on any place in the wilderness, and I'd find my way out pretty easily. Um, that's just how we grew up. And so we knew that Square Mountain was that direction. We're going to start following this trail and just keep going that direction. And we did. We kept going that direction. Well, the day was getting long, longer than we thought it would be. It was a bit slower. There was no water on the trail. We were getting dehydrated. I, we were about ready to carry a couple of people, I think. And we were going through the wilderness, and we saw this. And my parents were meeting us on Square Mountain to pick us up and bring us home. And it was a long drive from there. So we had to find Square Mountain. It's only 6,000 feet, but it's just this, it is square. Man, we saw this other mountain, and we're like, maybe it's this one, maybe it's that one. Where is, where is this stinking Square Mountain? I don't care if it's round by this time in our life. We need to find this mountaintop because we're tired. It's a long day, right, Aaron? And uh, uh, so we're hiking through, and, and part of the people um, decide to go over this way, and part of them decide to go over this way and get up on some of these ridges to see if we could see it. And I'm thinking, oh, great. We're not even going to get to Mount Rainier. I'm going to lose a couple students in the wilderness of Idaho. Because I guarantee these guys, you can't spin them around 25 times and plop them down into Idaho and have them get out safely without a bear eating them. And so, so part of them climbed up on this mountain. Part of them kept going on the trail, climbed up on this mountain. And we're kind of in between. And wafting over the air comes this yell. What is it? <laughs> You're on the wrong mountain. <laughs> Turn left 90 degrees. So everybody's like, <laughs> what's night? What? Uh, no GPS. I mean, we, we were out there, and you're, you're on the wrong mountain. Just comes, and everybody's turning left 90 degrees, but sent some back to Buffalo Hump. So we gather, and finally, with all the yelling and stuff, we get to the right mountain. So our goal was to get to Square Mountain. Sometimes the goal, the, the pursuit, the desire is right. It's just that we're looking in the wrong spot. We were looking on this mountain, on this mountain, but the mountain was over there. The, the direction, the hope, the place that we were heading was the right thing. It was the right thing. We were looking in the wrong spot. Wanting the right thing, but looking in the wrong spot. Sexual fulfillment is a good thing. We're often just looking for it in the wrong place. And that's what wrecks us often. And let's face it, it's about all of life. All of life. Why is there a problem on the streets here in North Seattle with prostitution and homelessness and addiction? People looking for fulfillment. Maybe even the right thing in life, in some place in their life, and looking for it in the wrong place. A place that's stealing, killing, and destroying them. We made it finally to the right place and got into the truck and headed home and everything was good. But it took some work, right? Lust is letting your mind linger with desire and imagined fulfillment. It's not always sexual in content, though, is it? But often it is. And when Jesus is talking about this, this commandment, uh, you've heard this commandment not to commit adultery. He also weaves in there the commandment not to covet because they go both to the same heart place. Jim Burgeon, a pastor friend of mine, says this. Imagining, lust is imagining what you would do, or uh, lust is imagining, imagining what you would do to or with 
another person, if it was guaranteed, there would be no consequences. Jesus draws no distinctions between lust and adultery. One's outward, one's inward, both are rebellion. Both are sin before God. Um, one's a thought rebellion, another is an action rebellion, if you will, right? It's not, um, uh, we say to ourselves, well, it's okay, it's, it's not like it's actually hurting anyone, right? That's our world. Well, actually, there's more to the story. Sex is more than just a physical act. We have, a, we have bought into this lie that as long as we are consenting adults and no one gets pregnant or a disease, then no harm, no foul. Pornography? If sex is just a physical thing, then this is a safe place for that? A solution to needs and wants? But men and women, we all know it is a myth that sex is just a physical act with no spiritual connection. With no spiritual connection leading to some kind of justification of needs, wants, and the safe outlet I'm powerless, really, to not act. But we are spiritual beings, and everybody knows that we're spiritual beings. We're not some evolutionary blob or slime. We're spiritual beings that have a spiritual connection that's far beyond just a, a touch on the shoulder or a physical connection. The spiritual being in us is a proven, scientifically proven space of our lives. In fact, even more now than it was 100 years ago. When the, the study of the mind, the study of the, the brain, people were thinking they'd study the brain and find all, out all about us and, and why we have this spiritual connection that's just physical. And come to find out in the study of the brain and the study of, uh, of uh, uh, quantum physics, actually, they discovered that we have a mind. We have this space around our brain and our body that intersects with other people. And it's a really beautiful thing. Tell me something. When have you had that eye contact that you know something happened in there? Remember that? Some of you were young when that was happened. Some of you, it was yesterday. You looked across the room. You were eyeing somebody across the room, and you had that eye contact. You know something spiritual happened in that moment. How about a wink? I mean, sometimes it's innocuous or whatever. It's not, not serious, but you know there's something happening inside of that space. Is a, is a handshake really just a physical act? We're discovering more and more after being isolated for a year and a half how important a physical touch is. It does something to us. And it's more than hormones or a, a, uh, a blast in our brain or something. Something else happens. A hug a physical contact hug. You can't tell me that if a handshake, a basic simple handshake has some kind of connection to it, you can't tell me that intimacy with another human being doesn't have a spiritual connection to it. God has something more planned, something more powerful, something more beautiful. <clears throat> this lust, adultery, is a soul thing. And so it's even more serious. It's about our heart. So the enemy enters in with stealing, killing, and destroying everything about it with guilt, shame, and hiding. Hiding. Unfulfilled as we look for the good in the wrong places. And we end up hiding. Well, he starts saying some things here. And uh, part of this, I wonder if Jesus gets sarcastic. Or maybe he's becoming kind of kind of comical. I don't know what he's doing here exactly. Well, maybe, maybe we can figure this out. So he says, if anyone looks at a woman with lust, uh, that person has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Verse 29. So if, if your eye, and he's looking at his disciple and say, listen, guys, even if your good eye, like your right eye, causes you to lust, you might as well just gouge it out, right? Because that's going to work. Jesus all of a sudden goes physical. And if your hand, even your strong hand, your right hand, your, your hand that you wield the sword with, causes you to sin, uh, you, you should just cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than the whole part to be thrown into hell. I, I, so there's a problem here, right? Do you see this? God is, Jesus is talking about the heart issue. All of a sudden he starts talking about this physical thing. 
But here's the heart thing. Let's change the heart thing. But to do that, let's chop your hand off. Let's gouge your eye out. And I think the disciples were like, uh, what? <laughs> you know, kind of sheepish giggle. Uh, real What? There's a passage. Um, next week we'll deal with this as well on marriage. And the disciples walk away going, who can follow you then? We're all doomed. And I think in this, maybe they threw up their hands going, wow, that's pretty harsh, Jesus. I thought we were talking about something else here. So perhaps Jesus is talking about something else here. He goes right into um, this passage and the next passage. But maybe there's something more here, and it's about the heart issue. And maybe he's, he's looking at it and he's saying, listen, guys, would this really, does he, I mean, maybe he just states the obvious, silly, physical action that he knows won't even solve the problem. Because guess what? Teachings throughout the Bible says that it doesn't take, you don't chop something off to get into the kingdom. And that chopping off usually was about circumcision or something like that. You know, that doesn't get you into the kingdom. Just a physical act. Amputation? <laughs> We've got all kinds of tools and fixes and books and therapy and guilt and shame, things that we can work on, and none of them work, right? None of them changes the heart. Something has to be, there has to be more. Jesus, I think, was just saying, listen, guys, this is serious. Uh, adultery and lust will get you in a lot of trouble and will, will, uh, will blind you to the world and will corrupt you and will cause harm and there'll be generational harm and you need to deal with it. Like take it serious, take it serious enough to deal with it. And, and really pointing out, listen, listen, the, the desire for, um, the desire, hey Joey, <laughs> stop clicking the pin, bud, thank you. <laughs> the desire for, uh, thanks buddy, uh, I appreciate that. The desire isn't bad necessarily. It's, the, it's not the action. Uh, the desire isn't bad. It's just looking for it in the wrong place. So here we are. Um, at some point in the world, I think we were looking at it in the wrong place, and we were looking for something more. We were looking for the Garden of Eden. Lust and adultery is actually looking for something more. It's looking for a place maybe naked and unashamed where we're not hiding anymore. And we decide to pursue our own self-modification, -modif self-entertainment. And saying, hear this, hear this. Shortcuts don't work. We desire the same thing God actually wants for us. So in anger, we desire justice. We were wronged and we want it taken care of. We want it corrected. And so we desire justice, but we go about it the wrong way through anger. Perfect justice is only in Jesus, so we get angry and attempts to have justice on our own hands to take care of it with our own hands. In adultery and lust, what is it that we're actually desiring? What is it that turns our eyes away? And I, there's, there's like a, a, probably a hundred different sermons inside of this sermon. I can't cover them all. So what is it in adultery and lust that we actually desire? Well, I think as humans, we... We desire to be desired. It's not a bad thing. We desire to, to be wanted, to feel wanted. It's, it's not a bad thing. It's not an evil thing. We desire to be fully known, right? It's not a bad thing to be fully known. It's something our hearts desire, and we want so bad to be fully known. In our pursuit of adultery and lust, we desire... We desire safety. We desire protection. We desire care. We desire protection, a hope, and peace, and love to be accepted. We want to get back to Eden, where those places were perfect, and it was wonderful, where our heart felt desired, wanted, fully known, safe. So we end up looking for it in the wrong place. The Sermon on the Mount, men and women, is not a list of new rules and regu regulations to make us feel guilty and shameful. We should never read this as that. There's more to this. We have human narratives. Our human narratives say, God just doesn't want you to have fun. God just doesn't want you to feel desired and wanted and fully known. So you can't do this. God, or, or we have this human kind of philosophy of saying that God just is constantly testing us. 
just going to constantly test you and try you again and test you again and try you again. Or maybe we're just evolved animals fulfilling our evolved animal pursuit. I'm going to say there's more to the story than those things. What if we are doing the things of lust because we are actually looking for the right things just in the wrong place? The wrong places kill us and are destructive to us, um, destroy us, and it ends up being the opposite of what we really want. There's never a great shortcut. Shortcuts almost never work, right? I'm sure somebody can come up with a scenario where a shortcut worked. But shortcuts in the spiritual world are usually, they, they usually lead to death. I'm going to take a shortcut stance and go to my computer and turn it on and go to websites. But I'm going to do the incognito part so nobody can see it. But it's going to be a shortcut to a bigger, more beautiful desire that God has given to us. The shortcut is, is drugs and alcohol and, and addictions that we turn to for self-gratification and self-longing that we're trying to fill something up and be fulfilled. Let's face it. Humans want to be fulfilled. <laughs> we want a full cup. We want to live out of a full cup because we've, we've experienced that. We know that, man, that's life. That's exciting. A full cup that's overflowing and is beautiful. Shortcuts always lead to empty and unfulfilling moments. And we walk away from it every single time unfulfilled and empty. His grace, discovered from knowing a demand for justice, points where to look, where our heart needs to turn to look. It shines a light on it. Shortcuts never will. Well, there's a guy who's really, really well aware of adultery and lust. His name is King David. King David in um, Psalm 37 wrote this. This isn't a guy who is, who is theorizing about this. This is actually him Acting in adultery, taking a shortcut to what his eyes were seeing and acting and it destroying him. Him going into murder, him going into losing his child, almost losing his kingdom. So Psalm 37, verse 4, David says, trust in the Lord and do good. Then, then you'll live safely in the land and prosper. So this is not about actions, it's trust in the Lord and do good. Turn your heart. Trust is about the heart and do good. Then you'll live safely in the land and prosper. Take delight and he will give you your heart's desires. You hear that? Take delight in the Lord and he'll give you your heart's desires. Your heart's desires to be fulfilled. Commit everything you do to the Lord. Trust him and he will help you. Your heart's desire. I can't say this enough that our heart's desires is, is to be fulfilled. So take delight in the Lord comes back to a, I don't know, a cheesy Christian saying, you know, spend time with God. Spend time with God. Abide in Christ. John 15, abide in Christ. Abide in the vine so that you'll have health, so that you'll have fruit, so that you'll blossom and bloom and grow and, and be um, vibrant in your life and be fulfilled. Abide in Christ. Um, a while back, probably in my, my early 30s, I finally discovered that God actually doesn't care about my sin as much as I care about my sin. And let me unpack that a little bit. I was holding my sin up, my sin of lust up, as this thing that God was so concerned about, and he was so concerned about punishing me, he was so concerned about um, maybe wrecking my life because of these things and not allowing anything to work out, not allowing all these things to happen. And, and I had this thing in my mind that God was just waiting for me to sin, waiting for me to mess up again so that he could punish me again. <laughs> Anybody? Guilt and shame. And, I, and this realization came to me that, and it was because of what, what Jesus talks about with, sin, with, with uh, uh, salvation, with forgiveness. And that when he looks at us, he sees us as a new creation. Um, who still choose our own, but a new creation. And that, and that perhaps he has grace on me, and he, he called me to do, um, to minister to somebody else, to plant a church in Seattle, even when he knew that I would still sin. And often we think, yeah, my past sins are covered. Thank you, Jesus. I appreciate that. But my future sins? What about those things that I'm going to choose? Oh, 
But the scripture is very clear that when you give your life to Christ, you repent of your sins and turn to God, you're repenting of your, your sins. And basically saying, I don't even know what sins I'm going to do, Lord, but I know that without you, I am doomed. And so I, I'm turning my heart to you as best I can through faith. David understood that. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you your heart's desires. What is your heart desire, and what's pulling you into lust, adultery and lust? Your heart desire. So, take control of your actions by knowing your heart. Stop, think, then act. Stop, think, and act. I want to leave us with three questions. Three questions. Next time that you come to a place, a juncture in your life, and it's, it's, Choose self-gratification and the shortcut or choose the hard thing um, by denying self and turning to God and sacrificing that. Ask, ask three things. Stop, think, and act. Number one, what good thing do I really want? Maybe this is about sexual sin. Maybe it's about some other kind of sin too. But the question is, what good thing? Ask yourself, what good thing do I really want? What am I really trying to get out of this? And just Ask that question. I think it will stop us in our path and have us think differently. Number two, if I follow this desire, what is the outcome? I've thought this many times in my life. If I follow this desire, what is the outcome? Well, the outcome can be pretty atrocious, to tell you the truth. Not because God is coming down and punishing you with a hammer. It's because life happens. And you cheat on your wife or you cheat on your husband... And that is found out, chaos rules and reigns. It gets kind of crazy. Think about it for a second. Stop, think, and act. If I follow through this desire, what is the outcome? Well, the outcome that many pastors haven't thought through when they've taken a step into adultery and lust is that the, the ministry that God's created and worked around them and the people who follow and listen and hear are going to be destroyed. Like hundreds, maybe thousands of people. I can't even tell you. No, I, I won't tell you, actually. Pastors over and over falling into some kind of addiction. Blaming somebody else, usually. It's usually somebody else's fault. Usually their wife's fault. <laughs> really? No, it's because they were weak at a time when they wanted to pursue a, a shortcut. It destroys people's lives. It destroys their family life. And all of a sudden, you have kids, you have grandkids who are messed up in a lot of ways, and they have to figure things out. One of the beautiful things about this memorial I went to last night was this man of God who walked this, a strong, confident path before God with his heart right um, every step of the way. I'm sure he had bad things happen. I'm sure. I'm sure he chose wrong, but it didn't come out that day. Number three, ask this. Does Jesus offer something better? The answer is yes, but we need to think about that question, right? Does Jesus offer something better in this moment? Man, that's hard. Uh, as, a, as a man, and I'm sure that some men are thinking this, I don't know what the women are thinking because I'm not a woman. But for men, we're thinking, yeah, you know what the fact is, God really doesn't care about my sexuality. He can't really fulfill me on that. Um, that's a legitimate thought. I hear that. And ladies, I think you probably think something similar. That God really doesn't care about this. And I just, I, I need to be fulfilled. I, I want to, 100% of the time, taking a shortcut does not fulfill us. 100% of the time. And 100% of the time, Jesus offers something better. You know, the Bible tells us that some people are called to marriage and some people aren't. And even in the not called to marriage, without that intimacy factor happening, there is a fulfillment that only Jesus miraculously can give you. Some people are, God calls them to that. I encourage young men all the time who are single, it's like, listen, you, you can kind of mess with your marriage bed by taking a shortcut when you're young. Because your wife will never live up to, and women, your husband will never live up to the images on the internet. It is impossible because they're fake. 
that's fake. The images on the internet have a, a unique thing that happens. And this is psychology 101 here, I suppose, on, on porn. They have an eye contact. If you look at images on the internet, they, they have this connection with the eyes right into the camera. This is because the purveyors of this kind of garbage realize how to get to people's soul, and it's through their eyes. And it feels like you're wanted, and you're going to be fulfilled because her eyes are looking at you. You are not helpless, men and women, for you're not a slave to sin. Turn around, sacrifice your desires, follow Jesus, and he will fulfill you. Well, some of you could say, perhaps, no, 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 actually, this, that's wrong, because Jesus is actually saying, listen, this is important, cut off your hand if you sin, cut, gouge out your eye, we got to take some drastic measures and cut some things off. And I don't think that's the truth because of other things that happen in the scriptures. Take, for instance, a young woman who is drugged into the open, into the courtyard, in front of the Pharisees, and a crowd of people, and Jesus. And she's thrown onto the ground. Say, this woman was caught in adultery. I don't know how she was caught by herself. There's a different problem there. She's thrown in there. The Pharisees are like, Jesus, we got to do something. This woman sinned, and so the rules of Moses say to stone her because she was caught in adultery. They were picking up rocks. Jesus then bends down. And these guys back here are thinking to themselves, ha, he's picking up rocks. Here he goes. We're going to stone. We're going to have a stoning right now. We're going to punish this, and nobody else will commit adultery because this is this. He bends down, and he starts... He starts writing with his finger in the dirt. Jesus is writing with his, writing with his finger in the dirt. Kind of like God writing with his finger on a stone tablet. <laughs> you know, Jesus, God is the controller of the rules, if you will. And the controller of the rules gets to understand justice and set justice. And he's not concerned about the outward expression of everything. He's concerned about the heart of this woman and those guys. And those guys on the other side. Concerned about the heart. And so he says, all right. All right, guys, you're right. That's what the law says. So uh, you with the least amount of sin, why don't you throw the first stone and we'll get this thing underway. <laughs> to which he was the only one who could throw a stone. Least amount of sin. No sin. These guys out here, their hearts started turning inside of them. Even these wicked brood of vipers, their hearts started turning inside of them. And the oldest one dropped a stone. It's like... Took off. None of the Pharisees were left by the end. I don't know how long it took. I mean, there had to be a Paul, a Saul in that crowd who was hard as nails. Even his heart, right? And the crowd is still there, and Jesus looks up, and the crowd's still there, and the crowd is hearing Jesus talk to, to this woman, and he says, where are your accusers? She goes, they've all gone. And he goes, I'm accusing you, I'm not accusing you either, now go and, and, and sin no more. He's not excusing the sin. He's not saying, that's ah, okay, keep sinning, it's okay, I know you have desires. He's saying, listen, there's a better way. There's a forgiveness, there's a change of the heart, there's a transformation that can happen, and there's real and true fulfillment, and Jesus would give himself on the cross to present and give us that real and true fulfillment. Father God, you're so good in the way you teach us, and I thank you for your word. <clears throat> I thank you, Lord. There's so much in this, this passage that we can teach on and understand, and I pray that we would continue to do that. But I'm so thankful that, that, there is, that you do not shame and guilt us and hold us down with this thumb over us, holding us our face in the mud, um, telling us how bad we are, and telling us that we've sinned once again, that we're bad. Lord, I know that's not your voice. Your voice is a, a voice of grace, but only a voice of grace inside the Christian community that understands that you sacrificed to kill and put to death that sin and shame and guilt. So Lord, thank you as a Christian, as one who follows you, that 
you have forgiven my past sins and my, free, my future sins. And Lord, I pray that we would realize kind of what the shortcuts in our lives take us through. Um, places of, of, of hardship, of shame that we put on our stack on ourselves, that the enemy loves it when we take shortcuts because he, he piles shame on us. And I pray that we would run away from that, that we would ask questions, Lord, the next time we come up to a place in our life. Ask questions. What good thing do I really want? <clears throat> we ask questions about where this desire will take us. And Lord, I pray that you would tell us that you offer something even greater. Fulfillment. Thank you, Lord, that we're not a slave to sin, we're not a slave to fear, but you have overcome those things. And because we're not a slave to them, we don't have to act with them. Lord, change our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name.